man, it's great to see all of you here again today. Uh, if you're joining us online, thanks for joining us. Um, man, there's a lot going on in our church, and, uh, and I appreciate uh, just everybody being involved in those different things. Hey, it's time for Kids Church. I almost forgot until I saw a couple of them. They were like, hey, we're not staying for this. Uh, Hey, it's time for Kids Church, and so uh, if you're fifth grade and under, you are dismissed to, to go to worship. You all are going to have a great time down there. Hey, we're beginning a brand new series of messages uh, this week, and we're going to be talking about this for the next couple of weeks, and we're calling it True Riches. And I want to be upfront about this series. As you can tell from the, the title graphic and the bumper video, it's about money. All right, it's about money and finances, and I know what the stereotypical belief is, is that that's all churches and preachers talk about, right? Every time, and I know somebody is probably here for the first time today, and, they're, and this is what we're talking about, and it's like every time I go to church, this is what they talk about. I, I understand that, and I know every sermon about money is about giving more money to the church, right? I'm going to be right up, up front, right off the bat. I think Christians ought to give more money to the ministries of the church. All right, there, I said it. All right, I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to say that. But that's not what this series is about, okay? I want you to know up front, that's not what this series is about. In fact, I hope that will be the last time over the next four weeks that you hear me say that. Um, this series is about helping all of us discover the true riches that, that aren't just rooted in our financial successes. There, there are plenty of financial experts out there that will tell you how you can save money and how you can spend wisely and how you can invest for retirement and how you can stay out of debt, how you can do all of the things to be financially successful. But let me just caution you with this right up front. Financial success is never as fulfilling as we think it will be. When, when money controls our decisions, we, we will find momentary satisfaction, but we will also find lasting discontent. But when God controls our decisions, we will find momentary challenges, but ultimately we will find lasting peace. And unfortunately, the church never really talks about that. What we talk about is supporting ministries and missionaries, and, and those are all appropriate things to talk about. Don't get me wrong. We should talk about those things. Those are good things to talk about. But we never really venture any deeper than that. We, the conversation really just kind of ends with that. Honest dialogue about faith and about finance is, is rare. For some reason, those two, two things seem to be allergic to one another. You can't talk about faith and finances in the same sentence. We typically don't talk about, uh, our, with our spiritual mentors, any of our, our finances, do we? we? We don't think about our faith when we pay off a debt, when we pay off a student loan or, or a mortgage payment or, or any of those kind of things. And on the rare day that we, we do learn about money in the church, we usually hear a very formulaic uh, life plan that looks something like this. Get out of debt. Achieve home ownership. Save for retirement. Live a comfortable, secure life. Just be sure to give 10% of your income to the church and its ministries, right? You follow that path faithfully, and what you will find is that you'll be, you'll be stable, and you'll be secure, and maybe even wealthy. That formula, though, you know the problem with that formula? It teaches us the exact same thing that our culture around us teaches us. All it does is put a special emphasis on staying debt-free and, and giving 10% of your income away. It, it puts a nice little Christian halo over the American dream. But when you search the teachings of Jesus, you can't find a single reference, not even one, not a single reference to anything like this formula, despite how frequently Jesus talked about money. And let me tell you, He talked about money a lot. And so in this series... We will unapologetically talk about money and our relationship with our finances. 
but not so that you will be guilted into giving more money to the church. Instead, we're going to talk about money and our relationship with our finances to help us answer this one question. How are my finances shaping my heart? How are my finances shaping my heart? What's the relationship with, the, with my finances and what's that doing to, to my heart? Because that's the only question that Jesus cared about when it came to money. It's also the question that most of us never really seem to give any, cons- any consideration. If we want to live the best, happiest, most purposeful life possible, then we need to look at the teachings of Jesus. And like I said, he taught about money a lot. Did you know that there are over 2,300 verses of Scripture that pertain to money and possessions and our attitudes toward them? Did you know that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about salvation? Did you know that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about the Holy Spirit? Did you know Jesus talked about money more than he talked about anything else? And contrary to what we hear most today about money, Jesus' roadmap for an abundant financial life was not to ensure that everyone was well off. In fact, even though financial health is, and wealth and stability and those things seem to be good things, right? No one would argue that those things are bad, right? We have no record ever of Jesus ever encouraging someone to pursue those. Not even one. Rather, he taught about money to inspire people to have a closer relationship with God. And personal finance to him was, was, not a, was not about following financial rules. It was about a dynamic relationship of trust with God. A journey toward the riches that are, that are true, uh, truly, ultimately, the most fulfilling. Our, our handling of money can lead us to, to true riches of a deeper relationship with, with Jesus. Marked by gratitude and contentment and trust and love. But if we pursue money for its own sake, if we pursue money for its own sake, I'm telling you, we're just chasing false riches. And our lives will be marked by by pride and coveting and anxiety and indifference. It will foster a tragic separation from from God and the joy that he offers. And because of that, Jesus' teachings on money and finances were less on the attainment of wealth, how to get wealthy, and more on how our relationship with money and our finances forms our character. So I want to say up front, being wealthy, not a sin, all right? If, if you're here today and you're thinking, oh, he's talking to me because I do pretty well. No, being wealthy is not a sin. Being financially stable isn't a bad thing. But I do find this interesting and kind of curious that many of the financially stable and, and, and diligent characters that we find in the Bible, they were condemned specifically for their attitudes about money and their finances, and their relationship toward it. Think of King Shalom, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, the rich fool, the rich young ruler, uh, the rich man from the story of Lazarus, the entire church of Laodicea. All of those are examples that come to mind. Any, uh, any of them could have been a- examples of success stories found in any money magazine uh, of the day. But in God's eyes, they had failed. They had gotten it wrong. They pursued money for its own sake. They neglected their opportunities to serve God and others financially. And because of that, it resulted in judgment. Now to be fair, unless we should be fair, there are some wealthy leaders in Scripture that are are recognized, who are commended for for their faith. Uh, People like Lydia, um, Cornelius, even Zacchaeus. They they were all uh, commended for, for their relationship with their finances. But they seem to be the exception rather than the rule. 
Scripture illustrates that money is the deceptive force that can capture the hearts of people. It draws them away from God like a powerful magnet. And the, and the closer you get to that magnet, the, the harder it pulls. The harder it pulls your, your heart away from God and more to money. The more, the more you pull away from God, the more ensnared you become. In fact, Jesus identified money as the primary competitor for the affections of the human heart. When he said this, he said, No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. I find it peculiar that he specifically identifies money as the competitor for the second master. And he says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And so when we invite Christ into our financial journey, it makes all of the difference in the world. And when we, change, and when we do, it changes our attitudes and our behaviors. It molds our hearts in, into ones that are filled with joy and peace and fulfillment and contentment and, and all the things that we're really looking for as individuals. And so over the next four weeks, we're, we're, we're going to talk about money, and we're going to talk about finances, but we're going to talk about shifting an attitude, a, a paradigm shift that needs to take place in our hearts and in our minds and in the way that we think about money so that we can move from pride to gratitude, so that we see everything as a gift. We, we want to talk about moving from coveting to contentment so that, we, so that we will spend modestly. We want to move from anxiety to trust so that we can save modestly. And we want to move from indifference to love so that we can give extravagantly. So that's what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. And so if you're thinking, uh, there's one of those that, man, it's like he's going to step on my toes on that one. Like, you see what we're going to talk about, so you know what week you don't have to come. But I'm just telling you, you need to be here, all right? Because for the next four weeks, we're going to, we're going to hopefully see a, a paradigm shift that takes place in our attitudes and our hearts when it comes to how we deal with money and how we deal with our finances and see that it's, you know, it's great to give money to the church. I think you should, right? But it's not just about what you give away. It's your attitude toward those things. So let's get started. Anyone know what kudzu is? Any show of hands, like any, a few of you? Probably if, you, if you're a farmer or, or an arborist or something like that, you know what it is. Kudzu was a weed that was introduced into the southeast United States back in the 1930s and, and the 40s. Farmers would plant, it, uh, plant this weed to, to help with soil erosions. And, and oftentimes, you go around these southern plantations that had these big porches. They, they, would, they would plant this weed, and they would use it for shade uh, on their porches. Unfortunately, it quickly broke loose, and it began expanding its foothold, and it, it claimed millions of acres over the, over the last few decades. Now, we can't seem to be able to get rid of this very invasive weed, and it costs millions of dollars in lost forestry production every year. Mowing and hacking are really probably the two best ways to control this. You can mow it down and you can hack it, but it seems to almost always come back. It never goes away completely. Pride in our hearts is kind of like kudzu. It's there even if we've recently chopped it down, even if we've recently mowed it back down to size. When we least expect it, it might pop back up again. We begin to imagine our own efforts and the things that we've done that, that, that have brought good things in, in our lives. We, we think of all of those things as things that we've done, right? We, we can hack away at our pride, but, but the only way to really get rid of pride is to have a true experience of God's grace. Without that, pride swallows up our gratitude and it robs us of, joy, uh, of the joy of God's unmerited favor. It robs us of the joy of God's grace. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said this about pride. He said, pride is a spiritual cancer. A spiritual cancer, that's strong words, isn't it? He said it eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. 
the early church, uh, the, the first century church, it taught that pride was the queen of all vices, that, that it was the most diabolical of all sins. When we put, our, put ourselves, uh, confidence in ourselves, it puffs us up. We become prideful, don't we? We develop a warped perspective. We, we begin to exalt ourselves above all other people, even God. That's why embracing gratitude, shifting from pride to gratitude, is really the first step towards exercising and experiencing the joy of God in our finances. And I get it, we should apply gratitude in all areas of our life, right? We should be grateful for, for not just our finances, but in every area of our life. And I get it, it, it might feel less practical to apply gratitude uh, and to think about gratitude in, in these terms, in terms of our money management. But, but moving toward gratitude, it enables us to experience a much, much more success in aligning our money with God's plan. Gratitude helps us to see everything as a gift from God, not as something that we've earned on our own. Gratitude undergirds and it supports contentment and trust and love. All the things that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. And look, I get it. There's, there's a lot of things that we do on our own that, that seemingly we seemingly do on our own. Like if I were to ask you what uh, a list of your greatest lifetime achievements, you could probably come up with a couple, couldn't you? In fact, just go ahead and take a moment. Think about what your greatest achievements in, in this life have been. I'll tell you a couple of mine. Um, and, these, and this is going to sound really shallow too, so maybe not greatest achievements, just things that I'm proud of. In the last couple of years, I've had, I've, in my sports officiating career, I've had the chance to, to officiate on some big stages. Um, I got to call uh, a championship game uh, that was broadcast on national ESPN. It was a big deal. I was proud of that. Um, I, this past summer, I got to do that again on the, in the softball side of things. I've, I've had great success in those things. But let me tell you this, if I thought I only did it on my own, I would be greatly mistaken. I've had people for the last 20 years invest in me, trying to help me be a better official. And it's taken them 20 years to get me to that point, right? It's been a slow process. Uh, but, but people have, have poured into me. And I'm just telling you, whatever your greatest achievement is, I, I guarantee that there, there are people that you could point to that you would say, they helped me. Think about what, what your greatest achievements, your greatest accomplishments might be. It, it could probably be you know, your job, your family, your possessions. Look, we, we live in a culture that celebrates individual accomplishments. We do. The, the self-made man is the icon of success in our country and in our culture. And, and it's true that most of our greatest achievements, you know, graduations, big promotions, paying off a house, they involve some awfully hard work on our part. But I'm telling you, we live in a very complex ecosystem of connected, fact, of, of connected factors that nothing is due solely to your own efforts. Think about earning a job or earning money at your job. Your skills, the, the thing that you do that causes you to be able to earn a minute, uh, money to make a living, they were given to you by God. Your job itself is a gift from God. Uh, even the political order, order under which your company, whatever it is, operates is ordained by God. Think about this, the planet that we stand on is it's a mixture of gases that you need for breathing and it's the optimal temperature for you to, to live while offering atmospheric uh, protection from, from deadly cosmic rays. All of that was put together by who? By God. The whole universe is held together each moment by the gracious hand of God. Not, not to mention your parents and your teachers and, and your coaches and your friends and your pastors and, and tons of other people who have invested in you over your life. If any of those factors were seemingly to disappear, what else would probably disappear along with it? Your successes. 
right? I can tell you that if it weren't for a couple of people who've, who've been very instrumental in my life, I wouldn't be at this, I wouldn't be here. I can tell you that. I can tell you that if it wasn't for Gary Coffey and John Knight, I probably would not be here at this church. I certainly uh, wouldn't be preaching um, if, if for other people, but specifically for those two, I probably would not be preaching here, so you can blame them. Um, but, but think about that. All of our successes, all of the things that we work so hard for are connected to other people. They're connected to other factors. And if those things were to disappear, so would all of our successes. You take out those things and it really it allows us to reflect on how fragile our success is, how contingent it is upon so many other things. It really frees us to let go of our pride and to say thank you to, to the God who made all of those things possible. It allows us to, to move from pride to gratitude so that we see all the success that we have as a gift. The, the idea that we can't stand on our own, it's at the heart of, of the Christian faith. You and I, I alone, we could not get the job done in, in any really aspect of life. We certainly couldn't get it done spiritually. We certainly couldn't get it done ethically or socially. Only in Jesus are we made complete. But, but our own se- uh, sense of self-sufficiency, our, our pride, it's hard to admit. And often it creeps in uh, slowly and stealthily in moments when we least expect it. And even, even the greatest of those in Scripture weren't immune to this. I mean, think about some of the great people that, that we read about, the great characters of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Uh, they were not immune to this sense of, of self, self-adulation, self-congratulation, this, this pride. Take, for example, the story of David. Right? David's a, David's a good guy, the most famous king of all of Israel. Uh, his life, it's, it's the stuff of a movie, isn't it? He beheads a giant. There, there's a, another king that's jealous that, that throws spears at him and he narrowly uh, dodges those spears. He danced nearly naked in the streets uh, in celebration. He, he's the best-selling author uh, of poetry. He faced many, many moments of despair, but he kept an unwavering faith in God who was both sovereign and the author of his story. That's what he believed. I mean, that's a, that's a good guy to look up to, right? Unfortunately, his mistakes are almost as epic as his successes. Not only, not only does he sleep with his neighbor's wife, he, he then kills her husband so just to get him out of the way. He, he slaughtered whole armies uh, and, and his record of bloody war was the exact reason that God said, you will not build my temple. There will be a temple built, but it won't be built by you because of how much bloodshed you, ha- you have caused. Look at this passage from 1 Chronicles where David kind of, he's puffed up. And he falls victim to pride here. First Chronicles says this, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel, to, to take a census. And so David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I might know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times and as many as they are. Are they not my Lord the king, all of them my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. When we read this passage, at first glance, it seems innocent enough. Like, all right, what's the big deal here, right? There's, there's, David's going to take a census, and governments around the world have taken censuses for, for years. In fact, they still do, right? So, so what's the big deal here? The big deal is Israel was supposed to be different than the rest of the world. Their, their, king, their king was supposed to rely solely on God for, for protection and, 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 and provisions, in the ancient world, there were only two reasons why, why a king would take a census. And in fact, I'll say there probably 
still these only two reasons why governments take censuses today. But it was to, to impose a new tax or to prepare for a military campaign. That was the only reason ancient kings would number their people. That they want to know, how much more money can I generate? How much more revenue can I generate? And, can I, and do I have the manpower to overtake this other army? Probably the same two reasons that most governments still today take censuses, right? David's desire for a census meant that he was planning to increase his power. He, he was dreaming about either increased revenue or a stronger military. Things that he himself could put into motion, even if God didn't call him to do those things. There's an implied lack of faith here. That's the problem with this passage of Scripture. There's, a, there's an implied lack of faith as God as, in God as the provider for, for all of the nation. David instead is taking charge of the nation's fate and he's seeking more than he's already been given. The story goes on to say that God was greatly displeased with this thing and that severe consequences followed. In fact, when they went into war, they lost. They went into battle and many, many men lost their lives because God was angry with them, angry with David. Now I get it, we might not compete with David for, for his, in his life for adventure or bloodshed or intrigue. But we do share his struggle with pride and self-reliance. How often have we imagined how much more money we'll make next year? Or calculated what kind of house we might be able to afford someday? Or what about even just looking down with a little bit of smugness on those who, who have less money or less status than we do? Just as God wanted Israel to humbly rely on Him, He desires that same for us. He desires that we would, would rely solely on Him. In fact, there's a letter written in the Bible about a thousand years after David's life uh, to address this very point. It was written to Christians, all right? It was written to Christians in a church in Laodicea. But it might as well have been written to us today. Laodicea was, was a very prosperous country, like many countries. And, and it was proud of their prosperity. Many, many citizens had indoor plumbing. Think about this. This is thousands of years ago, and they had plumbing. Like many people in this country didn't get indoor plumbing until just a few decades ago, right? Th they were proud of that. There was a town theater. There was a marketplace that teemed with, with activity. They had the cutting edge uh, of medical technology. You could buy goods from all over the known world. It was the place to be. It was a happening place. They took pride in how well off they were. They even refused government assistance when an earthquake hit and Rome said, hey, we'll come in and help you. And they said, no, 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 we got it. We, we can do it on our own. They, they were very much a, a, a group of people that were pull themselves up by your bootstraps kind of people. But Jesus had some strong words for the affluent church in Laodicea. Here's what he said to them found in Revelation. He said, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into, into him and eat with him and he with me. And when you read that passage, and you think about, man, Jesus could be talking to any number of churches in our country, right? He could be talking to any number of people in our communities. That's really a heartbreaking passage. Not only is he saying this to the church in Laodicea, but he's saying this to us. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't condemn us. Rather, he patiently knocks, and he waits for us to open the door of our hearts to him so that he can come in and eat with us. If we repent, if we will be willing to repent of our financially independent attitudes, 
We can enjoy the real riches of a deep relationship with Jesus, gratefully depending on God for provisions as we live in faith. When we move from pride to gratitude, we see everything as a gift from God. And this idea of, of gratitude, this theme of gratitude, I think it's so excellently, excellently displayed in the story of the prodigal son. It's, it's a real familiar story. You probably know it, but maybe if, if you don't, if you're not familiar with it, Jesus tells a story about faith and finances and forgiveness. The story goes like this. A man had two sons, and the younger son asked his father for his inheritance early. This would have been extremely insulting in, in, that, day, in, in that day and age. Basically, he was saying to dad, go die. Go die so I can have my money and I can do what I want. That's what he said to his father. In, in our culture, it would be the, the equivalent of maybe a 16-year-old son uh, taking all of his dad's money, walking out the door, and on the way out, he turns around and he gives his dad the finger. That's what I think of you. That's, 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 that's the equivalent here. And so in this story, Jesus tells us that the young man, he wasted all of his money on parties and prostitutes, and he hits rock bottom when the funds run out. So when the funds run out, he decides, i got to do something, i got to eat somehow. So he gets a job feeding some pigs, and, and it's not enough to pay the bills. It's not enough to provide for, for his lifestyle. And so he ends up eating the slop that the pigs are eating. And he says, you know what, there, there's got to be a better way than this. Maybe I'll just go back to my dad's house. Maybe I'll go back to my dad's house and I'll tell my dad, look, I know I don't deserve to even be called your son. I've wished that you were dead. I've, spent all, I've wasted all of your money. I don't deserve any, uh, anything. Will you just hire me as a servant and let me be your servant? And when he makes up his mind that that's the speech that he's going to give to his dad, he gets up out of the slop and he begins walking back toward his, toward his family's home. And then you get to this part of the story. and It's my favorite part of the story. It says this, it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I love that. I, I love that. That's my favorite part of the story. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And it, and it says that he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Verse 21 says, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But, but the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they begin to celebrate. Verse 25 tells us the rest of the story that meanwhile the older son was out in the field. When, when he came near the house he heard the music and dancing. So he called out one of the servants and asked him what's going on. The servant says your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because, he's because he has come back to him safe and sound. And the older brother, it says, became angry. He became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. Notice there, the father again goes out. He says, but, but he answered the father, Look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and, and I've never disobeyed your orders. I've been the good son, essentially is what he's saying. Yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Verse 30 says, But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, he says, My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he was found. Do you know what the word prodigal means? It means extravagant. Specifically, it means wastefully extravagant. 
This son, he failed morally and financially. And the point of the story is this, is that all of us have done the same. We have all failed. We are the prodigal. God is the father. We've all sinned morally. And none of us, I'm telling you, none of us have, have saved or given or spent our money perfectly, have we? We've all messed up there. We are all King David with his census. We are all like the Laodiceans with our independent spirits. We are all the prodigal son and his reckless failures. But this story shows that even if you're deeply in debt, even if you've run far from God, even if you're wealthy and consumed with an ugly pride, God will always welcome you home. He will always welcome you home with open arms if you'll simply turn around and come back to Him. And I want you to notice this, that the father wasn't taken off, taken, uh, off guard by the son's return. He didn't need a moment to figure out what he was going to say to his son when he, when he got to the gate. He didn't need any of that. Instead, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him. You know what that means? It means that he was looking for him. He never gave up on him. He was expecting that one day he would come strolling down that dirt road. And when he did, he was going to be ready. He'd never given up. On his son. Even in the midst of our failures, God watches the road for us to come back to him. He watches for us to come down the road to come home so that he can embrace us with his love through the person and the work of Jesus. His love is wild and it's astoundingly generous. And the value that he places on us does not depend on our credit score. And it does not depend on how much is in our bank account. And it does not depend on if we have uh, massive amounts of debt or, or any of those things. God simply longs for us to... to to return to him so that he can embrace us, so that he can put his best robe on our back, fresh sandals on our feet, a ring on our finger. He wants us to simply come home because Jesus has made a way for us to come home so that we can all be grateful. We can all be grateful for the grace that Jesus has shown to us. Look, we can't accomplish any of our spiritual reconciliation on our own. We might be able to, to invest wisely and, and make some good financial moves that get us in a better financial position. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when, we, when we're dead and gone, the scorecard is not going to matter how much money was in our bank account. It's not going to matter how much, how much property we owned or cars that we owned or how many vacations we took. It's, none of that's going to matter. What's going to matter is do you know Jesus? That's what's going to matter. Do you know Jesus? And, and if, if you think, hey, I'm, I've been a pretty good person. I, I'm pretty good. I, I, I've, I've, given, I've given more than 10% to the church, right? I've, I've lived faithfully. I've done all of these things. I'm a pretty good person. But you don't know Jesus? You're going to be more than disappointed when that day comes. When we trade in our sense of self-importance for, for gratitude, when we, when we move from pride to gratitude and we begin partnering with God in His work, we discover the peace and fulfillment that He has that, that has otherwise eluded us. Gratitude is the living thread that ties together the gospel and generosity and God's grace in our hearts. And so as we enter into a season of Thanksgiving, right? we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving here in, in a couple of weeks. Let's enter this season with gratitude, not pride. Let, let's move from pride to gratitude so that we see all good things and ultimately our salvation as gifts. So that we can be grateful for what God has blessed us with, what He has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. Jeremiah the prophet wrote this. He said, Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. And we want to be grateful. 
We want to be grateful for the gifts that you have given us. We want to be grateful for, for all of the things that you've blessed us with. Our, our finances, our, our, our wealth, our, our families, our jobs, all of those things. But ultimately, we want to be most grateful for our salvation. Father, we want to be most grateful for the gift that you have given us in, our, in your son, Jesus, so that we might have the opportunity to live eternally with you in heaven. Father, help us to, to remove this, this sense of self-sufficiency that we have that, that so many times blocks and gets in the way of our relationship with you in, in so many areas of our life, not just our finances, but, but maybe specifically in our finances. And so, Father, would you help us to, to, to begin to shift in our, in our minds and our hearts this attitude of pride to an attitude of gratitude so that we might see everything as a gift, including your son Jesus and the grace that he offers to us. Father, thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.